0: This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Today, we talk about two books about two very different subjects, but they share one quality a fresh look at an old problem. First, we talk with Mike Rothschild about his book, Jewish Space Lasers The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. It's about the persistence of right wing anti Semitism. Then, later in the show, Adam Hart tells us about how people become prey for wild animals and why conservation to preserve wildlife needs to take human concerns into account to succeed. His book is The Deadly Balance, Predators and People in a Crowded World. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station at writersvoice.net. Right-wing anti-Semitism is on the rise. This is a real phenomenon, not to be confused with claims by the pro-Zionist lobby that anyone who criticizes Israeli policy towards Palestinians is anti-Semitic. In fact, some of the most fervent supporters of the current Israeli government are also promoters of right-wing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, like the notion that Jews are a, quote, globalist cabal that controls the world's money supply, or that Jews are promoting immigration to, quote, replace the white race. Many anti-Semitic conspiracy theories center around one family, the Rothschilds. Over the years, in fact, over the centuries, they've been blamed for everything from the sinking of the Titanic to causing the Great Depression and even creating the COVID 19 pandemic. How did the Rothschilds become a lightning rod for the conspiracy theories of the last two centuries? And why do these theories persist so widely today? My guest, Mike Rothschild, no relation, explores these questions in his new book, Jewish Space Lasers. In it, he sorts out myth from reality to find the truth about these conspiracy theories and their spreaders. Well, Mike Rothschild, welcome to Writer's Voice.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, First, we want to establish that you are not related to the Rothschild family of your book.
1: I am not. I am not. We had a family genealogy book that uh, went through all of the my, – my family going all the way back to the, the old country, as they say, and the Rothschilds of Nordstedt in Germany are from a completely different part of Germany. And of course, one of the things I talk about in Jewish Space lasers is that the banking Rothschilds never actually emigrated to the United States. They stayed in Europe to their detriment much later.
0: So was there any awkwardness at all about your name in writing this book?
1: Well, there's always been a certain amount of commentary from conspiracy theory believers. You know, when I started doing this stuff about 10 years ago, I would get comments like, oh, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. You know, How stupid do they think we are? The matrix must be broken. So I've always had that in the background, but there wasn't anything that really stood out for me while I was writing this. And the response from the the sort of the conspiracy community about the book has been fairly muted. I think people know by now that I'm pretty even-handed in how I talk about this stuff. So that there's not a lot for them to, to go on. It's like they can Accuse me of being a Rothschild, but I'm not. So, you know, the discussion kind of ends there. Even handed with
0: conspiracy theorists, what does that look like?
1: Trying to see it in a more humane way, trying to look at the people who believe this stuff not as kind of brainwashed idiots, but as people who are looking for something, people who are yearning for answers to complicated questions looking for order and chaos looking for reasons why things happen That give them some amount of agency and control when, of course, most of us know that we really don't have a lot of control and a lot of agency over grand world happenings and that with a lot of things there is nobody in charge. It's just a lot of occurrences or the machinations of people working out in the open and there's no real um, conspiracy behind it. You can just see them doing it.
0: Now, the title Jewish Space Lasers, uh, that comes from something that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, said in 2018 But she didn't actually say Jewish space lasers. So uh, what happened?
1: So back in 2018, when California was going through this uh, spate of devastating wildfires, there was a conspiracy theory going around that these fires were not the result of climate change, but of uh, space-deployed laser weapons that were being used by the evil cabal for various purposes that no one could ever seem to articulate. So this was back when Marjorie Taylor Greene was not a member of Congress. She was just a, you know, CrossFit mom in Georgia who had some questions. And she wrote this long, very convoluted, almost unfollowable conspiracy theory about how the fire was the result of this solar energy startup company working with Governor Jerry Brown and Dianne Feinstein, and they were burning land for a high-speed rail project. And you know, one of the board members of Pacific Gas and Electric, oh, is also a vice president at Rothschild, Inc., and oh, isn't that interesting? So she never uses the phrase Jewish space lasers. She never says Jewish, but she doesn't have to because she says Rothschild. And to the people who believe this stuff, Rothschild and Jewish basically mean the same thing.
0: And you call this book Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, Mike Rothschild. You, you call it a biography of an idea, the idea that Jews control everything and the Rothschilds are the kings of the Jews. So let's kind of briefly go back to the beginning. What is the idea of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories
1: here? The intertwining of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories really goes back to the time of Jesus. You know, there were accusations even then that the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, that they were behind everything that had happened. The idea that Jews were sort of using their money for global control, that didn't really happen until really the last century. But antisemitism and money and finance and power have always been intertwined in a number of ways, and in a lot of communities in the Middle Ages, there was always kind of an unease about what Jewish communities were doing with that wealth and how they earned it, and that the money that a lot of Jewish bankers lent at interest was sinful. It was uh, you know, it was considered a mortal sin. But at the same time, a lot of these communities and the, the rulers and the churches, they needed this money. They needed fortunes to build their grand edifices and raise their armies. So there's always been an unease and, and a kind of paradox that a lot of Jews have lived in where they had access to this money that was needed by these communities, but they were also hated for having it. And I think that unease and that kind of inability to do anything right has translated in the current day to this idea that Jews control the world, run everything, but are also weak and lazy and professional victims. And it's, it's this never-ending paradox that Jews have to live under, and I think we've seen this manifested in a number of different ways you know, really over the last two millennia.
0: You mentioned the Middle Ages. The Rothschild family started after that in the seventeen hundreds. But you do uh, root the founding of their of their house of Rothschild of of their financial business in the role that Jews had played, which you've you've just kind of hinted out. But you know, lay this out for us, because the vast majority of Jews in Europe were grindingly poor.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: So so t- talk about how the House of Rothschild came about based on the role of Jews in Europe in the medieval and later times.
1: Sure. So for really almost a thousand years, there has been the role of what's been called the court banker, court factor or the court Jew, which was literally a Jewish banker who is on the sort of royal retinue of whatever leader there was who was the person who gave them access to the wealth of the Jewish community. This goes back to the 1100s. I write about one in England who was named Aaron of Lincoln, who was the probably the richest man in the British Empire at that point. And this unease really translated generation after generation and it allowed a lot of Jewish bankers to carve out very minor livings You know, making small time loans, or buying and selling coins or metals, or or exchanging currencies. You know, every state in the Holy Roman Empire had a different currency. So somebody had to be responsible for making sure you had the right one, and of course they would charge a fee, and that would often be somebody in the Jewish community. So uh, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who was the patriarch of the Rothschilds as we know them, was the son and the grandson of one of these uh, small-time dealers. Now, Mayor actually left Frankfurt. Uh, he was able to leave the Jewish ghetto, and he was uh, he was at rabbinical school, but he had to come back because his parents died. and he was suddenly responsible for raising the rest of his family. So he got into this dealing of coins and metals and making small-time loans, and he became the court Jew to the crown prince of Hess … That gave him access to other royals in Europe, allowed him to build up a little bit more of a name, to travel around more. And eventually he and his son Amschel began doing the business of the elector of Hesse, who was one of the royals who was responsible for electing the Holy Roman Emperor. And so this was at the very end of the Holy Roman Empire. The The empire didn't last much longer. So Mare and his son had the responsibility of hiding the vast fortune of the elector of Hesse from the forces of Napoleon. And they were able to invest this money mostly in the armies that were fighting against Napoleon. They made a huge amount of money doing this. And by the time the Napoleonic Wars ended with the Battle of Waterloo, the Rothschilds were one of the richest Jewish families in Europe. And this happened very quickly. And it it gave them a kind of a myth about them that they that they had this kind of supernatural ability to make money. And of course, myth very quickly turns into conspiracy theory, particularly when you're dealing with Jews.
0: Yeah. In fact, you say that all conspiracy theories are rooted in anti-Semitism and all anti-Semitism is rooted in conspiracy theories. Explain that.
1: The, The idea of a conspiracy theory is basically blaming somebody else for something that has gone wrong in your life or your country or the world at large. And for so many people, that scapegoat is a powerful Jewish cabal. So the idea that anti-Semitism is the root of of modern conspiracy theories comes from the fact that somebody is in charge of of doing all of this. Somebody has to be funding all of this. And of course that is almost always seen as the Jews and somebody needs to be in charge of the Jews. And so that's where the idea that the Rothschilds are the kings of the Jews and it's a – a nickname that was given to them in the press in the 1800s that they were seen as sort of the, the Jews who stood above everybody else. And if the Jews are running everything, the Jews at the very top of that have to be the ones who are the most visible and the ones who are in charge. And of course so much of what powers anti-Semitism is this idea that Jews are all working together you know, secretly meeting to to finalize their plans, that they're all secretly wealthy and powerful. Of course, we know that that's not true. And if you tell people, well, you know, the vast majority of the Jews in America are the descendants of those who fled crushing poverty in Europe, they'll go, oh, that's not true. You know, how can you possibly expect me to believe Jews aren't all rich? And it's just, you're dealing with a fundamental stereotype that has been part of our culture for generations.
0: So I just have to, interject in here, Um, this is not the subject of your book, but because of current events that are going on, I just want to be clear that when Jewish Voice for Peace and other Jews, including myself, I have to say, criticize Israeli policy towards the Palestinians, that's not what you are calling anti-Semitism. Is that correct?
1: Right. And that's something that I think a lot of people are very painfully discovering right now, um, anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, particular opposition to the Netanyahu government, none of those are the same thing. Even just the idea that a Jew and an Israeli and a Zionist, those are all different things. They can be the same thing, but they certainly don't have to be. And particularly for American Jews, they're not at all. Most American Jews, you know, are not Israeli, obviously, and don't support what the Netanyahu government is doing. Uh, do not support the right-wing militarism of of many far-right conservative Zionists, and then of course there's always been conflicts over Zionism in Judaism. You know, I talk about that even with the Rothschilds. You know, the Rothschilds are linked with Zionism, particularly because of the Balfour Declaration. But even in the family, there were disagreements about should there be a Jewish homeland? What should that look like? What role should we take in that? So the idea that all Jews kind of operate in lockstep and all agree with each other. You know, just go out to dinner with three Jewish people, and you will be uh, very quickly disabused of that notion. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Now, I'm I'm sure there are among our listeners, folks who don't know anything about the Balfour Declaration. Just briefly explain that.
1: Sure. So this was the letter and it was written to Lord Rothschild, uh, basically talking about the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Of course, this was three decades before that actually took place. Uh, The Rothschilds really didn't have any role in, in the founding of Israel. They were just Used quite a bit as kind of a potential funder or a sort of a sounding board because of their wealth and fame, and there were all kinds of schemes going on. That you know, the Rothschilds should pay for the repatriation of all European Jews to the Holy Land. I mean, this is sort of cockamamie stuff. But even even in the family, there were there were people who did not think that there should be a Jewish homeland. That it was counter to their business interests, that it wasn't necessary. So the the linking of the Rothschilds and Zionism is, is much more of a sort of historical piece of trivia than anything that really had a, a foundational role in the establishment of the state of Israel.
0: Now, um, Mike Rothschild, in this book, Jewish Space Lasers, you – Go into a lot of very bizarre conspiracy theories that are attached (laughs) to the Rothschilds, and you explore some of them in depth, like the historical ones, like the the Battle of Waterloo. If there was one conspiracy that you think is the most important for people to understand about,
1: is, is there one? That's a really good question. You know, the Waterloo one is really the foundation of of the modern Rothschild myth, but I don't know it's that it's really the most important one now. I think it's really crucial to understand for sort of why this family continues to be used as the punching bag for the conspiracy theory community, but I would say the one now is probably that the Rothschilds run the Federal Reserve, that they control worldwide central banking, that they own all the central banks, that's one that has powered a a huge amount of conspiracy theorizing in the 20th and now the 21st century, Uh, the idea that the Rothschilds secretly were part of the founding of the Federal Reserve. And it doesn't take a lot of research to figure out that they were not part of it at all. There was a meeting to establish the Federal Reserve. There were representatives of, the, I think, the three biggest banks in New York there, and the Rothschilds just weren't part of that. They they were never part of the New York banking establishment. That's one of the things that really uh, hamstrung them in the 20th century was that they they weren't on Wall Street. They didn't have that kind of representation. So not only is accusing the Rothschilds of being part of the founding and control of the Federal Reserve, not only is it an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, it's just not even accurate. Uh, not that these people really care about that at all, but it's one of those things where if you look into it at all, you'll find that this, that it completely falls apart.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, none of them were really accurate, but as you say, they weren't even here. <laughs>
1: so- right, right, right. There were. There is no Rothschild. I mean, there is a Rothschild and company in New York, but it's not... Or maybe there isn't any anymore, but there used to be, and it was never one of the major wall Street banks. um they just never had that role, and they never were on the level of Morgan or Rockefeller or even some of the other German Jewish bankers, like the Warburgs or the guggenheims they they just they were just never there.
0: They did have a couple of agents here at different times, and I was just knew nothing about this, but you actually make a link between Donald Trump. And his relationship to a member of the Rothschild family, in fact, you even say that um, there is a link between Trump and the heart of the Russian interference in the 2016 election and the Rothschilds that you say likely played at least some role in propelling Trump into office in the first place.
1: Yeah, there are a number of links between Trump and the Rothschild, either the family personally or the, the Rothschild Inc. business. And you know, the biggest one is that his former commerce secretary, Wilbur Ross, was the bankruptcy guy at Rothschild Inc. in the 80s and early 90s. And it was Wilbur Ross who came in and bailed out the Trump Taj Mahal and saw – the sort of frenzy of celebrity around Donald Trump and said, hey, we can use this to our advantage, and they cooked up a deal where Trump would sell off some of the Taj Mahal, but he would keep some of it, and he wouldn't declare bankruptcy, and obviously it's really complicated, but this was one of the things that helped – Trump, this reputation is like being able to make money out of nothing and survive any kind of financial hardship. And, you know, Wilbur Ross gets rewarded with a cabinet position. Now, the other link is, of course, Paul Manafort and his relationship to Nat Rothschild, who is a member of the family, uh, who has a link to Oleg Deripaska, the aluminum king who was all wound up with the I- interference in 2016 and is mentioned a bunch of times in the some of the Senate reporting and, and all of that. And of course, Nat Rothschild was never accused of any wrongdoing, but there was all of these weird links of of sort of – money and influence and involving Russia and Ukraine, and it gets very complicated. But it was a little bit jarring to see a Rothschild even involved tangentially in all of this and to be in some of these meetings and to potentially have been a link between Deripaska and Manafort and Trump. It's a little bit alarming. And of course, Nat Rothschild would be one of the few members of the Rothschild family who would push back at some of these rumors, and he sued the Daily Mail for calling him a puppet master, uh, and he lost the suit. But it was one of the few times where you publicly saw Rothschild pushing back at how they were per, how they were written about in the press.
0: So an actual conspiracy,
1: right, Hi, happening in broad daylight <laughs> that
0: the that the MAGA nation never mentions, right,
1: right, never never mention uh, Trump's potential links to the Rothschilds or to the Rothschild fortune. Because, you know, that would be inconvenient for them.
0: Now, you know, I've heard Trump using the term globalism and globalists. Talk about this term, globalism, and, and link it to the rise of conspiracy theories on the Internet and, and then also link it to George Soros because there's, there's a tangled tale here.
1: Sure. The term globalist it is really another version of the canard that Jews are rootless, that they have no loyalty to their country, that they are citizens of the world. You know, this is a slur that goes back to the 30s in the Soviet Union, where Jewish communities were accused of rootless cosmopolitanism. I mean, it's a sort of a nonsense phrase, but it basically means that they are citizens of the globe. And that is used now. as as a connotation that Jews are much more concerned with world affairs than any one nation, and in particular, the United States. And of course, this is used against George Soros all the time, that he is uh, someone who wants to take over the world, that his loyalty is to himself and his money, and that he he is disloyal to the United States, where of course, he's a naturalized citizen. It's one of those things where it denotes that you care more about world government than your own government. And it's, it's basically another way of saying disloyal.
0: Now, George Soros has been behind a lot of support for democracy initiatives. Is this what's put him in their sights? And, and why is he a stand in for the Rothschilds?
1: Well, it's interesting because in the 80s Soros was very much aligned with Republican politics. He was a he was a supporter of Ronald Reagan. He was helping support uh, the democratisation of, you know, post-Eastern Bloc nations. I mean, this is really somebody that you would think that the right would have gotten behind. And they were for a while, but then in 2004 Soros began openly supporting the presidential campaign of John Kerry and openly opposing the Iraq War. And this was, you know, still just a few years post-9-11. It was still very much that toxic patriotism of with us or with the terrorists. And I think Soros immediately became the public enemy number one of this kind of toxic mutated jingoism that said that anybody who didn't support George W. Bush and the Iraq War was a terrorist and was evil and was on the wrong side. And of course, Soros, you know, he's he's an elderly Jew. He has this thick accent. He says things that are. Sometimes can be easily taken out of context, and he was funding quite a few progressive social causes. He was funding and still continues to fund access to reproductive rights, drug legalization, prison reform. Uh, These were things that that were very easily twisted to say things like, oh, he wants to empty all the prisons and he wants to make crack legal and all this other stuff. And so within really just a year or two, you had this Soros industry where – People like Glenn Beck, people like Bill O'Reilly, were talking about him every night as the the the, the single biggest opponent of democracy, the you know, freedom, the biggest funder of Obama, and all this other stuff. And it you know it happened very quickly because he was much more visible than the Rothschilds were, and the Rothschilds really never got involved in American politics. And of course Soros did, and that's the big thing that made him a very quick, easy target.
0: Now, one of the uh, strangest and uh, most lethal kinds of conspiracy theories that are around these days is replacement theory. Talk about replacement theory and and how it links back to, I mean, something I have a hard time understanding, but how does it link back to the whole long history of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic tropes?
1: Sure, so the idea that the Jews in general, the Rothschilds in particular were funding uh race mixing and miscegenation that that goes back to the Nazis you know you can find that in Nazi propaganda worries about- you know Jewish bankers importing Africans to French cities to you know erase the white race there. It was really adapted after the war by a number of European and particularly french neo nazis the idea that uh, Jewish money was essentially paying for what they distir- what they described as the mongrelizing of Europe, and this would eventually take the form we know of as the Great Replacement theory. Now, a Great Replacement is a little bit less anti-Semitic than a lot of things like white genocide, which is a topic that was very hot in uh, you know neo-Nazi and white supremacist circles in the 70s and 80s. The idea of the what's called the Zog, the Zionist occupied government, that was all mixed together. Great replacement is a little bit less anti-Semitic on the surface, but of course it's in, it's entirely anti-Semitic once you really look at it. But it's still this idea that, that Jewish interests, Jewish money is funding or responsible for widespread immigration of non-whites into white countries so that they will outbreed and outvote white people and eventually uh, lead to the kind of – what they describe as the mongrelizing of the entire world. And it's a, it's a hideously racist, anti-Semitic, and violent conspiracy theory.
0: So, you know, how do we combat this, really? What is your sense? I mean, this book is is a step in the right direction, but it just seems like anti-Semitism is, is exploding all over the place. Of course, we talked before, I mean, it doesn't help that Israel is doing what it's doing, but we really have to separate Israel from the kinds of things that you talk about in your book. So
1: what can people do? Yeah, and it's a huge problem. And, you know, this spike in right-wing anti-Semitism really started – probably 10 years ago or, or maybe even longer than that, certainly with the anti-Soros industry. But that was a little bit more focused on Soros specifically. But now we're seeing this this massive spike in right-wing antisemitism. And, of course, now in the last few months, there's been a spike in left-wing antisemitism, but it's really still nowhere near as the antisemitism you'll find on the right. And I think what we can do is is first understand the scale of the problem and that our good intentions are not going to solve a problem that has been around for the last 2,000 years. That, that is not going to end this generation. But what we can do is end it in our own lives and really understand the terminology that anti-Semites use, understand the catchphrases and the codes that they use. And when we see people in our own lives doing that or when we do it, when we are falling back on Jewish stereotypes, of Jew, you know stereotypes of Jews being cheap, Jews being powerful, Jews being in control, all Jews thinking alike – we can catch it in ourselves and in the people that we know and and really forcefully push back against it. You know, we we're not going to be able to do anything about sort of global anti-jewish sentiment, but I think in very small scale ways we can stop it in our lives and and maybe slow it down culturally and globally that way.
0: Well, as I said before, your book is a step in that direction, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Mike Rothschild has been really great talking with you about this book.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Mike Rothschild is a journalist and author of two books, the one we spoke about today and another one about QAnon. He's an expert on the intersection between internet culture and politics through the lens of conspiracy theories. Read an excerpt from Jewish Read an excerpt from Jewish Space Lasers at writersvoice.net. Next up, how to protect wildlife by protecting people. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like interview transcripts and extended interviews. This past October, a couple camping in Banff National Park in Canada was attacked and killed by a grizzly bear. But in general, bear attacks in North America are pretty rare. Not so true, however, in places like India or Kenya, where poor villages situated near wildlife areas can be threatened by attacks from such animals as tigers and lions. The consequences for both people and wildlife can be dire. How to reach a balance between the needs of humans and the needs of wildlife in order to protect both is the subject of Adam Hart's book, The Deadly Balance, predators and people in a crowded world. Adam Hart is professor of science communication at the University of Gloucestershire. A biologist, broadcaster, and author, he works on a range of topics including African ecology and conservation, insects, and citizen science. Adam Hart, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. So this book, The Deadly Balance, in it you say conservation isn't about animals. It's about people. What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that within conservation sort of science and practice is is really quite well known but but sort of outside of that it doesn't generally get across to people i don't think it really cuts through because most of what we see in the media for example about conservation is very animal focused and actually with conservation what you're you're really looking at trying to do is to find you know and hence the the, the partly the the title of the book you're trying to find a balance between the people that live in a particular area that we often quite sort of arrogantly from afar might refer to as habitat, and the habitat itself and the ecosystems there. And and you can see that at play, you know, even in sort of a very trivial way. I live about a mile or so away from a nature reserve, and it's not a particularly big nature reserve, but all around it, you've got farmland, and you've got dog walkers, and you've got people that want to go mountain biking, and you've got all sorts of other people that that want to use that land. and And in order for that nature reserve to function as a nature reserve and for it to have all the bird life that it encourages and everything else you have to think about how you manage the people around there and you have to make sure for example that the local farmers are are taken account of and that they can still graze their cattle on, on sort of land that, that's by the side of it you have to make sure that the people have somewhere to park and that they can go somewhere and if, if you don't look after the people in that particular location the whole thing falls apart and you end up with cattle grazing everywhere and people mountain biking over the scrapes that the birds use and, and all sorts of other things, and if you sort of zoom back and look at much wider landscapes, you know, I'm thinking here, for example, about some of these big African landscapes, which I talk about quite extensively in the book. What you're really dealing with there is, even though we don't have the sort of the the density of people there, and and you know the the sort of level of, of anthropogenic change and so on, you still very much have people as part of that landscape. People live there, and if you ignore that, and if you just treat sort of conservation of that area is, well, we've got to save lions or we must save the elephants. If you ignore the people, then you end up with all kinds of of human wildlife conflicts, as we call it, which never really goes well um, if people are threatened by animals, whether it's existentially threatened, I mean, some of these animals can can kill us or whether it's um, a sort of more indirect challenge, for example, competing with our livestock for water or, or perhaps eating our crops, then it usually goes quite poorly for wildlife. So if we want to conserve some of these places, we have to think about people as well. If we don't, then what experience tells us is that it nearly always goes badly.
0: You say your purpose is to make it more less deadly for humans and other animals, and I appreciate you say other animals because people forget that we are animals too, where predators can live without the fear of persecution and humans can avoid becoming prey. And one of the things that was uh, so interesting to me is I, I, I'm sure this is the first book I've ever read or even known about that focused a lot about us as prey, humans as prey, most of us in the global north don 't fear becoming prey unless we 're hiking in grizzly country, but it 's a distinct reality for many people in the global south. Why is that
2: yeah, if you think about certain um, regions, certain areas, for example, parts of India at the moment, particularly with tigers and leopards you 've got areas of of lion country in places like Tanzania and Zimbabwe and Zambia where yeah it's it's not like it's it's a very high probability, but nonetheless it is part of your sort of danger landscape if you like that there is the possibility that you may be taken by a wild animal and and that wild animal won't just be attacking you in a defensive way it won't be a case of you being in the wrong place at the wrong time and sort of cornering it you know there's a lot of these kind of narratives out there actually in many cases it will be the consequence of that animal hunting you as a prey item and we see this in India a lot at the moment I'm getting almost daily updates from from people out there who are studying some of these conflicts particularly with tigers and leopards and what we're finding out there is an awful lot of people are, are falling prey to some of these big cats as the big cats there are increasing in number so we're getting more and more tigers and leopards which is a conservation success story right that's that's a good thing that's what we wanted but unfortunately the landscape that they're living in now modern day India is very different from the landscape that they um, may have been in sort of increased numbers in for example at the beginning of the last century and so what we're finding is that some of these animals are much more likely now to come into contact with people perhaps on the edges of towns or where people are going into forests and those people have no real cultural sort of history of being around in forests with large numbers of of tigers for instance um, because they haven't been really since you know the 70s when tigers were very um, very much persecuted and, and doing very poorly so you've got tigers that aren't used to sort of people being a potential threat and they just look like kind of easy to eat, (laughs) you know, spray items basically and you've got people that don't know how to act in the forest when there are big predators around because they've lost some of that some of that knowledge so in in India for example we're finding quite a lot of problems with that the the other problem in India at the moment actually is that leopards are doing very well and they're moving into the areas around the outside of towns and they're actually feeding up on feral dogs that live in very high numbers in certain parts of India and that again is is causing problems because of course they're in the same area as people, and inevitably at some point you're going to end up with with people entering into that prey spectrum. So in India, we're seeing quite high levels of, of direct predation on, on people from tigers and leopards. In Southern Africa, lions and, and crocodiles are perhaps the big the big players. And again, really what's influencing that particularly really is, is poverty. If you're poor and you live in a rural area, you're likely living an existence that's very much closer to, to the natural world than you know many of us are living now I'm sat inside a house I'm looking around I can see some fields and trees but mostly it's houses I don't have any particular fear of walking outside and there being a predator living there but you know for many people they are living in areas where these animals still roam wild and That's problematic if you live in a a very flimsy dwelling, for example, you have to go outside to go to the toilet or you have to cover large amounts of ground to go and tend your crops or perhaps you have to guard your crops against sort of pests like bush pigs and so on. And and all of these things can expose you to to predators. Um, Crocodiles are particularly uh, problematic here because it's very easy to avoid being attacked by a crocodile just don't go down to water bodies but if you need to go to water bodies to bathe or to wash clothes or to gather water then you have no real choice and we're seeing in certain parts particularly across Africa with Nile crocodiles but also the saltwater crocodile up through Indonesia is particularly um, problematic for, for people that live in poorer areas.
0: So are you saying that if there were better sanitation, higher incomes, that people would be less liable or would it just mean that they would encroach further into the habitat where predators are?
2: Well, yeah, and this this of course is the big is the big problem, the big balance. It's very easy for us to sit and sort of uh, develop countries and, and talk about this because we've largely eradicated the predators that, that live around us or we've extirpated them from certain areas and sort of forced them out into the wilderness. Yeah, I think development doesn't need to be a dirty word. And certainly for some of the rural communities, some level of development would definitely help in removing some of their risks. So for example, with crocodiles, there was a very neat study, unfortunately, based on quite a number of human deaths. But what they showed was there was a big spike in deaths around an area of of South Africa. And it was caused actually by um, a very simple thing: a pump stopped working. So a group of villagers were getting water from a standpipe that was being pumped up from a well, and they never had to get out to the river. So they were getting all their water from this this sort of pipe. When that pipe broke, when the pump went or the, the tap went or whatever, they were n- uh, no longer able to do that. So they had to then go down to the, the river. And over the course of a couple of months before that pump was repaired, the number of attacks and the number of fatal attacks absolutely skyrocketed compared to what it was before. So even some very simple, if you like, light, quite light touch development, really, but quite basic fundamental development. Getting people away from that reliance on on natural water courses can can help considerably, yeah, but of course we have um, in many parts of the world we have an expanding population, we have people wanting a high quality of life, of course, the same as, as everyone else and and all of these things are a tricky balance and you know set against that, I suppose is is how we view or want the world I mean for many people, I think there's a lack of realization that wildlife still exists in human areas. So I think a lot of people think places like Africa, for example, and India have, you know, animals behind fences in glorified safari parks. And certainly such places do exist. Nairobi National Park, for example, Piensberg National Park, these are quite small areas with heavy fences and so on. But if we move away from those areas, we have huge, I mean, almost unimaginable tracts of land on which wild animals still roam, but in which people still live. And and I think unless you've been to some of these places, it's really difficult to get your your head around the scale. Um, I was in Namibia uh, not that long ago, and we were just parked up on the side of the road. There's a, a sort of a raised section of the road just north of Vindhook and it's just a beautiful view. So we stopped the vehicle and got out and just had a little look and I, I got my phone out just to see where we were and, and I kind of zoomed out and zoomed out and zoomed out and sort of <laughs> I realized that this enormous vista that I was looking at you know the horizon seemed like it went on forever it was probably at the height I was standing about six miles away and I drew a little kind of circle in my head on, on that map and then kept zooming out and kept zooming out and I realized that little circle that I could see was barely the O in the place name that we were at of a very, very small place. And when you zoom out, you just kept zooming out and zooming out, and you realize just how vast some of these areas are. And when I looked at that aerial map, that tiny circle that I could see was like a a pixel in amongst my entire screen. And and even then, I hadn't reached the end of this particular kind of area of sort of semi-wilderness. But when you look around, you can see tracks going through, I could see there were some settlements in there as well. And it's these sorts of Vast areas that I think we really need to be careful about protecting, because this is where we still have wildlife living. You know, naturally, it's not behind a fence; it's not reliant on people paying for, you know, their um, entry fee to go and see it, like a sort of giant zoo. Right, it's still there, but in those landscapes, we also have people, and it's that balance that's very tricky. And I think, you know, it's important people understand that that's the, the, the situation in many parts of the world.
0: This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with wildlife biologist Adam Hart about his book, The Deadly Balance, Predators and People in a Crowded World. Well, in Namibia or in India or elsewhere, what are some of the things that are being done to protect both wildlife and people?
2: So things like lions, the first thing really you need to be thinking about is, is livestock. And actually, this is something that, that interestingly, when people have their livestock attacked, they tend to retaliate against wildlife more than when people are attacked, which is quite interesting. They see that as more of a problem. And there's there's lots of examples. Uh, it was studied quite a lot in Mozambique, for example, of uh, where a human was attacked you know, perhaps people might go out and they might kill a few crocodiles, or they might kill a lion, or they might not. But when livestock is attacked, then you see an escalation in people going out and and going after those species, and you can understand that because livestock is very much part of their cultural life, but also very much part of their survival. So the first thing that you can definitely do is protect wildlife, and we're we're seeing that happening quite successfully in some parts of the world, particularly parts of. Southern and Eastern Africa.
0: You said the first thing to do is to protect wildlife.
2: Sorry, to protect livestock. So protecting livestock is key, and and that can be done, and is being done quite successfully in parts of Eastern and Southern Africa using bomas, sort of predator-proof bomas, which are basically like sort of corrals or kraals, as they call them in some parts of of South Africa, where you bring your livestock in at night. And that may not be something that you're used to doing. It may be something that requires a change in in husbandry and so on. But bringing livestock in at night, putting them behind something that's predator proof in some way. It doesn't have to be particularly sophisticated or costly. It can be sort of very thick thorn bushes that have been chopped down or whatever, but that can be a very effective way of reducing human wildlife conflict. It also tends to reduce the presence of predators around people. Because if you've got livestock that are sort of wandering around and they're able to be predated by by things like lions, it brings those predators into the area and then of course it exposes people to, to risk. So that that's a very important thing that can be done is to protect the livestock. Another thing that can be done is to make human dwellings more robust. That can be easier said than done, particularly if people are moving around or if people don't have access really to a lot of building materials. But it's certainly something that's worth considering because Uh, There are lots of reports, for example, throughout Tanzania of of lions uh, barging through um, walls, climbing up the outside of walls and sort of sliding down through the gaps um, between the walls and roof and so on. So trying to sort of predator-proof houses and dwellings can be useful. Also, there's a lot of studies now that are being done looking at the people that are attacked. Where are they attacked? When are they attacked? What are they doing when they're attacked? And that sort of knowledge can really help. So tiger attacks, for example, in um in some parts of india have been studied quite extensively and what you can see is that the people most likely to be attacked are usually men they're usually out in forests they're often fishing they're often on their own or they're in groups but they're in groups that are very strung out so keeping together in a in a tight group for example is definitely something that's worthwhile there are certain times of the day and there are even certain times of the lunar cycle which are worth avoiding so Having a bit more knowledge about some of these attacks can certainly help. And so all of those things are are useful. The other thing that can be done is to give predators value. So, I mean, I suppose a simple sort of way to look at it is that, is that if a rat, if you have a rat in your house, and you know it's just a rat and it's not really worth anything to you, then you'll you might well just want to get rid of it. But if that rat is suddenly worth a few thousand dollars, then you might want to get into the rat breeding business, right? So there are ways to monetize. Uh, predators. Tourism is is a very obvious way, and it's worked quite well in parts of Australia, for example. People want to go and look at the crocodiles. It's worked, of course, for lions and tigers, particularly. People want to go and see them. So that can be a very effective way of sort of monetizing it and making their presence in in the landscape something that's valuable to people. Yes, they may still be a problem, but it's a problem that's sort of softened, if you like, by the fact that they're also providing some form of revenue. Um, Other ways that you can provide revenue, well, saltwater crocodiles are a good example, actually. They were um, brought back from from the brink in many respects by uh, what's called ranching. So they are their eggs are collected. Uh, the crocodiles are reared up to a certain size in, in artificial sort of facilities, and then they're killed for their skins, which go to the fashion industry. And as a consequence of that, the habitat that these crocodiles lived in was preserved. Local people would go and collect a few eggs, but they would do it in a sustainable way. They would get paid good money for doing that. And it sort of Allow those crocodiles to rebound because people were, were exploiting them for their skins anyway. So much better to do it in a sustainable way. Uh, that's not something the fashion industry like to talk about too much, but no- nonetheless, that's what they do. That's what they've done and, and continue to do. And, and actually, whether we, whether we find that distasteful or not, it has definitely helped for the saltwater crocodile. And then, of course, the other way that you can monetize predators, which is much more controversial for many people, is, is through hunting.
0: Well, let's get back to that in a second. I just want to point out another example of making wildlife valuable, you know, is direct payments for that. I remember reading uh, – yes. I don't think it was in your, in your book, but I remember reading about a project in India where the elephants were eating the crops – and what happened was uh, the town, the village, were actually paid to grow crops specifically for the elephants on the periphery, you know, kind of further out from the periphery of the village. So that that's the first thing the elephants would encounter and they'd eat their fill and, and they'd leave the crops alone. And from what I understand, it was quite successful. Do, do you know about that one?
2: Yes, I've heard about that. And, and that can be very effective. What, what you're sort of doing there is kind of managing the landscape. You're managing people and you're managing the wildlife in ways that, that everyone can benefit. Yeah, that sort of thing can be very useful. And of course, also direct payments. The problem with, with sort of paying people to tolerate wildlife, saying, okay, you've got these lions in your area and we all want lions to be around, but you know maybe you're not so keen on them. So here's a bunch of money. The problem then is, is first of all, if you well, you have to find the money. um, And that's not always very forthcoming in some of these areas, you have to get the money to the right people, and you have to make sure that it's it's going to the community rather than sort of ending up in someone's back pocket, which can also be a a problem. But it has to continue and be sustained. and, And that can be can be an issue, but yeah, these types of—I mean, we we need these sorts of more imaginative solutions if we if we want these animals to, to be right by the side. And you know, I, I guess the yeah. So the other the other way to get money is is through through the type of hunting that's become known as trophy hunting, and that that becomes quite controversial. Although not that controversial, actually, in lots of conservation. But
0: you actually start this book, Adam Hart. You start the deadly balance tracking lions soon after the famous Cecil the lion, who was from that area that you were in, was killed by a trophy hunter. And I remember when I read about that, I was just devastated. But actually, this was kind of what happens with trophy hunting, that it hunts older animals that have already kind of reproduced their kind and it leaves younger animals alone. So tell us about why trophy hunting is good for conservation.
2: Yeah, well, I would sort of caveat that really before we get too far into it with with well-regulated, well-managed trophy hunting is, is good for conservation and the way it works or can be um is exactly as you say within any population there'll be older um individuals that are probably no longer breeding so they've been kicked out for example you see it with elephants older elephants you see it with with lions um and so on and they're they're no longer sort of a a, sort of a breeding part of that population so their removal actually will make no effect on the population other than to reduce it by one um it won't affect the future um, population. So the idea a bit behind sort of regulated hunting is that people will pay, hunters will pay to come to a particular area, often paying quite handsomely to hunt an animal, sometimes over the course of several weeks. I mean, a classic African safari might be as long as three months. These days, perhaps um, somewhere between a week and three weeks, and they will pay to hunt a particular animal, perhaps in a particular way and that money in the ideal world and of course we don't always live in an ideal world but in the ideal world that money goes to pay local people for their services it can go and be folded back into the community they pay quite a lot of tax uh within the country which again can can fund conservation and so on so the idea behind trophy hunting as part of conservation is that it funds it provides revenue actually hunting an animal doesn't conserve anything it's the revenue that it generates that can be used to fund conservation and when it works it can work very very, very well, and you know there are examples of it working well in parts of Namibia, for example, in parts of um, Zimbabwe, and so on. Um, there are other examples of it working poorly. Perhaps some um, people are not killing the correct animals. Um, they're taking younger animals, for instance, or they're taking too many animals. That's obviously harmful. And there are also examples where revenue isn't going either to conservation or to communities. But yeah, it's a complex activity that, that actually takes part, place across the world. And So this is not a particularly uh, unusual activity. But yes, in, in places where you have things like lions, for example, species like lions and elephants, that can be problematic having hunting that provides revenue for for the people living in that area can be, if you like, an incentive to keep those animals there. But, you know, it's all it's all part of the toolkit. There's no one sort of great solution that will that will fix all of this, unfortunately. But yeah, trophy hunting, regulated trophy hunting can certainly be part of that toolkit.
0: You have listed three main factors that put pressure on predators, for example, tigers. Uh, persecution, we've talked about because they're dangerous to us and livestock. Habitat reduction, we've also talked about. The third one is that we deplete their prey. And so my my question is, is... When you are keeping tigers successfully from predating livestock, are people also going out and hunting the prey of tigers so that they don't have enough to eat?
2: Well, if they are, with with the case of tigers, then they're then they're likely doing so illegally. So, so India has quite strict regulations on hunting. So almost certainly in parts of India, that that necessarily isn't the problem. The the bigger problem is that, well, first of all, you have a legal um, offtake of of these animals poaching, Um, but you also have uh, our livestock competing with them for particular um, forage for, for water and so on. And also human activity can tend to scare wild animals so if we are living in and around the edges of forests for example we may well find in those edge habitats fewer prey species living and that then becomes a problem because what, what you have with tigers is a, a type of ecology where the males will disperse younger males will stay with their mother for a while but after a while they get kicked out their mother doesn't want to feed them anymore that father who has the sort of big territory perhaps with several females living inside certainly doesn't want some young you know, young males sticking around all the time. He's uh, still in breeding condition. So these young males get kicked out and they get bullied out pretty swiftly. And so they get moved to the edges of, of habitats. Now, three, 400 years ago, more than that perhaps, there would have been very extensive forests and, and sort of corridors throughout the, the land where they can move around, more or less unseen, actually, quite frequently. That's not the case now. We've fragmented the habitat, and we tend to force them towards the edges. Everything's an edge when you have smaller and smaller areas, and so we may well end up with this prey depletion effect: prey being scared, prey being themselves persecuted, and so on. So less and less for them to eat. Uh, actually, what we found in in India at the moment is that tiger numbers are really increasing quite heavily. Um, they've done very very well in certain parts in Nepal as well. They've they've done well too. So. Their numbers are increasing, and that is the main the main issue. The main thing that's driving them into conflict with people is that we've got increased numbers of tigers, successfully conserved. That you know, it's a wonderful success story in many respects, but it does mean that we're getting lots of these particularly young males sort of being pushed towards the edges, and those edges are where they come into contact with people. And yeah, I mean, I get sent pretty much yeah, like I say, almost daily um, quite horrific um, images and videos of of you know, people that have been. In they have become prey and according to at least uh, one person that's that's trying to document some of these things it's not easy to do actually across India he conservatively estimates that tigers are taking 500 people a year and so are leopards and that's a very conservative estimate and that's increasing
0: so talking about becoming prey toward the end of the book where you're talking about grizzly bears and and even uh, other brown bears There are rules for viewing wildlife safely. You know, I know when I went out to Yellowstone, I carried bear bells. I sang at the top of my lungs. (laughs) I had a bear-proof food container.
2: Sounds like all the right things.
0: And I was alone, but I also knew several... uh, Another time I'd been there, two or three people had actually been mauled and eaten by bears, so I uh, I was pretty well aware of it. So... What are some rules for viewing wildlife safely?
2: I would say the first thing is is just respect an animal's space. Um, Binoculars were invented for a reason. We don't need to be that close. I see this all the time. We we take student groups down to South Africa and I've, I've, I've... been to a lot of different places around that part of the world particularly where people what they want to see elephants they want to see lions they want to see hippos crocodiles as well you know dangerous animals and they never seem to be close enough it doesn't matter how good your camera is or how amazing your zoom is or how great the binoculars around your neck are people still want to be almost on top of the animal and that isn't going to end well it's either going to stress the animal out and there's lots of studies that show that that tourism pressure particularly can cause all kinds of issues for certain animals cheaters most notably it reduces their um productivity then you know the amount they can breed but more importantly it puts you in their space where they could end up hurting someone and when they do it's not going to end well because if a tourist gets mauled by a hippo or gets charged by something the approach tends to be well maybe we should do something about this so i think that's the first rule is just respect space you don't need to be that close and don't crowd an animal. You know, if you've got, if there's one or two vehicles or there's one or two people around and they're too close, you don't need to add to that. You know, walk away. Uh, if you're walking around, you know, as you said, stay on the trails, follow the local instructions, people in those areas that you go to, where these species live. You know, bears, you mentioned, you know, parts of Europe where wolves are quite common now. You know, in Southern Africa where you've got lions, in India where you've got tigers and so on. You know, follow the rules that people have set down. Have a, have a sort of good think about it. Dogs aren't always good to have around either so um, consider leaving your dog at home and don't feed don't feed animals that would be another you know there's you're talking about North America you know there's the famous kind of phrase a fed bear is a dead bear well that kind of works for for most animals they're wild animals we don't want them close to people it's wonderful to look at them and it's a fantastic privilege to be able to view them but you know keep your distance and be respectful because ultimately it's going to be the wild animal that probably ends up coming off worse you know than than the person, although obviously bad things happen to people too. Well,
0: very good advice, and there's so much more that we didn't have a chance to get to. This is really a fascinating book, an unusual book, The Deadly Balance Predators and People in a Crowded World. Adam Hart, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
0: Go to writersvoice.net to read an excerpt from The Deadly Balance. Next week on Writer's Voice, we talk with Cy Montgomery of The Soul of an Octopus fame, along with illustrator Matt Patterson, about their acclaimed new book of Time and Turtles, Mending the World, Shell by Shattered Shell. Don't miss it. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon.